The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome again, everyone. Nice to see everybody tonight. It's always nice to take a little time in September and review the essence of our practice. What is it that we do here at Common Ground? A lot of times it seems like the practice is somehow a rejection of life because life is difficult or my mind is difficult. I just don't want to be here. So maybe I'll go meditate. It's like a a slightly more wholesome version of turning the TV on or calling a friend. It's like I'll disappear into my mind. I'll focus on my breath or I'll focus on my sensations. But I really just don't want to feel what I'm feeling. I don't want to be exposed to what I feel exposed to. And there's it's some tr- there's some truth to that. I mean, it, it can be a useful skill to be able to drop the world or retreat from the world. And there are a number of skillful ways to do that. When we concentrate on our breath, for example, or when we do a loving-kindness reflection, we actually do feel, for a while, a temporary escape. We've put aside, or we have, not in a bad sense, we have suppressed those tendencies in the mind to worry or to plan or to compare or to feel bad about ourselves, bad about the world. We've suppressed that by holding our attention with some other meditation theme, whatever that might be. And then the mind can be really refreshed. But ultimately what we're training the mind to do is to be right in the middle. So there's two basic training methods in meditation practice. One is retreating from sense experience because the way sense experience is arising now or being felt now, I end up getting pushed around by it. I get pushed around by what I like and what's pleasant, and I get pushed around by what I don't like, what's unpleasant. So I'm going to retreat. I'm going to go into some place. I'm going to pay attention to something so that I'm not going to be pushed around by the experiences that are being known that are pleasant or unpleasant and pushing me around. So generally we call that concentration practice or samatha practice and it's a Pali word for calm. It's for calming the mind by retreating from what's agitating. I'm not going to think about my to-do list. I'm not going to think about this difficult relationship. I'm not going to think about getting older. I'm not going to think about the Republican debate. I'm just not going to think about that stuff. I'm going to just be with the breath coming in and going out or I'm going to be with the body or I'm going to be with this theme of loving kindness or compassion. So we pick up a meditation theme and we hold that. That is the object that the mind is aware of moment by moment by moment. And to do that, we have to put everything else down for a while. And it feels really nice to put it down. 
And then the other basic meditation practice is the practice of understanding, developing understanding. And the only way the mind can better understand the way it is, it has to be right there in the middle. But it can't be right there in the middle trying to manipulate the experience. Because when we're trying to manipulate something, the manipulation itself gets in the way of understanding it. So the way to deepen understanding is to be right in the middle without trying to manipulate it. Being radically sensitive or radically awake and nothing else. Because when we're like a mirror, you know, a mirror just reflects what's going on and we're not, don't have an agenda, we're just, there with that pure intention to want to see things as they are, to be present, then we may not be retreated into a quiet or a calm place, but the mind will better understand the way it is. Because it's there, awake, not for or against the experiences that are being known. So you can think of this like being with the breath is... You can use the breath to retreat from experience or you can use the breath to stabilize this more wisdom style of practice where we're not trying to have a particular experience. We're trying to understand the experiences that are coming and going and understand the underlying nature like they keep coming and going. That inevitability of change. So there you are awake, right in the middle, undefended, and you start to notice the ceaselessness of change. So whether you're aware of hearing, hearing just keeps changing, or seeing, or thinking, or emoting, or feeling sensations, no matter what aspect of experience you're sitting right in the middle of and being known, and is being known, now what stands out isn't the particular of the experience, but that it's a changing process. Thoughts, you don't, you're not so concerned about the content of the thought, but that one thought leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. You're not attached or identified with a particular sound, but that there's a river of sounds. It doesn't ever end. Same with sensations, same with all experiences. You're aware that the sort of uh, groundlessness of experience. Like when we're sitting right in the middle, aware of things as they are, that means we're not using our thoughts like my idea of what I'm doing or my idea of who I think I am or who I think you are or whether I think it's wise to be a Comic-Con on Wednesday night. I'm not using any of those thoughts to kind of give structure or a sense of ground to the present moment. So you can just notice right now when uh, we allow whatever thoughts might be coming and going, they're just thoughts. So we're not using the thoughts that might be coming and going in your mind right now. We're not using them to create any frame, any structure, any meaning to what this is or what's happening. 
And you see the kind of, do you intuit the groundless, like how open or groundless or unformed this moment becomes when my mind doesn't frame it with, like, what is he talking about? See, even that kind of a thought sort of frames like, oh yeah, this is puzzling. Even that thought, this is puzzling, kind of creates like, I'm a person who's finding what Mark is saying puzzling. And that kind of gives some ground, a sense of ground. But there's a way now, any moment really, and so I encourage you to experiment right now, to notice that whether or not there are thoughts coming and going in the mind, of course you have the thoughts related to what I'm saying, but you can in a sense notice that right behind the thoughts or right here is a sense of things being unformed, open, undefined. And that that's perfectly fine. Like that, not conceptually defining what this is, who you are, whether this is good or bad. You see that it can be unformed like that. So that's that's really where we go with the wisdom practice. We're learning to relax, open to this experience. It's always here that's not being mediated or controlled or defined by language, by our ideas about things. And we learn to trust it more and more. And this is a space where there a lot of insight arises. Insight, you know, when we talk about spiritual insight, we're not talking about thinking through something and understanding it conceptually in a better way, which is good, but that's more sort of a reorganization of our thought. Insight is something that's pre-verbal. Now there may be thoughts, you know, because thoughts are a little bit like sounds. They just keep moving. And so the thinking mind, that's what it does. It thinks and the eyes see and the ears hear and the skin touches. So we don't need to be afraid of thoughts or try to suppress thoughts. But we're not, we're training the mind not to be defined by the thoughts that are moving through it. Like somebody leaves a radio on in the mind. That's just that verbiage, you know, that ongoing narration or dialogue. And sometimes we pay attention to it. Sometimes it's just like background sound. But even when we're listening, even when we're engaged in language, we don't need to forget that those are just thoughts. Like we're not forgetting all the space. Because like if I have a strong thought that my mind's identified with like, I don't really know what I'm talking about tonight. (laughs) And then we forget, it's like it literally becomes our universe. That idea or that image or, you know, you know, that feeling. I mean, it encapsulates the mind. But we're learning to be able like to have language or to use thought but the mind not defined or imprisoned by whatever that concept or idea is. Because the mind, the wisdom in the mind, the space in the mind, knows it's just a thought being known in this vast, unformed, boundless, mysterious space of the heart or mind. 
So how do we keep coming back to this place of learning, this place of insight? Well, the first step really is to recognize in any moment, some of you have seen that acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N. It's a simple way to remember what the practice is about. So I encourage you just to work with it or come up with your own better acronym if you'd like. But it's just a nice way to remember the basic elements of being right in the middle. And so the R in RAIN stands for to recognize or to connect the knowing mind is it needs to connect with something that's arising, something that's being known. And we're we're basically recognizing in that moment that there's always these two things. There's a knowing mind recognizing, connecting with something. Oh, this is being known. So we're recognizing what's being known. Or we're recognizing that something an experience of the body or mind, is being known. And that's so deeply grounding. It's like, does it matter what we're lost in? Like to connect, I mean, something simple, like just to connect the temperature of the room feels like this now. You know, just connecting with the sensitivity Skin has to temperature, even if it's sort of neutral. You see how immediately our whole world of good and bad, me and you, common ground versus home, I mean, whatever concepts we, our mind might be lost in, when we just notice it's warm like this or it's cool like this, which is true, right? It's not like something the mind is constructing or manufacturing. It's pre-verbal. I mean, you might say it's warm, but before your mind defines it as, yeah, it's a little warm, like this now, you have the actual experience of temperature, right? Or you could use something even more simple, more concrete, like the sits bones, like that. Before the concept of sits bones, there's that experience of contact or pressure, that you're feeling with your buttocks against the cushion or chair. You see, you don't, we don't need any thought about that. So just getting a sense of what we mean by the R and recognize. So whenever we're starting over in meditation practice with insight, the wisdom end of meditation practice, the first step is always this R. Okay, can the mind just connect? Just recognize something that's real. Oh yeah. Contact, you know, the pressure of the buttocks against the chair or the feeling of the breath coming into the body, like touching the nostrils as it goes in. Oh, this is like this. You know, the hardness or the pressure, it's like this. And we're learning to have an experience Uh, be aware, the mind is aware of an experience in and of itself, not mediated, necessarily mediated by language. We don't need language to know that the buttocks against the chair or the cushion is like this, right? To know that is preverbal. And it's radically simple. 
And then the A in rain is to accept it, to allow it to be. So we're really learning how to not just have a moment of contact or recognition, but how the mind might sustain that radical, simple way of being, that non-conceptual way of being, where we need to keep allowing that to be just that simple. Okay, pressures like this, contexts like this. And you, you might even sense it's a little bit like a death because so much of who or what we take ourselves to be is involves our thoughts about me and what I'm going to do later tonight and all the terrible mistakes I made today or what I hope is going to happen tomorrow and down the road. So when I'm just connecting or recognizing that sitting is like this, sensations of the buttocks against the chair is like this, and then sustaining that, allowing that experience to be, and the eye is like learning how to be interested, intimate. So the A, allowing and accepting, and the I, interest and intimacy, they're just two qualities of mind more of the receptive, the relaxation end of the equation with accepting and allowing, and the more assertive, energized end of the mind with the interest and intimacy, kind of a more radical exposure opening up. So those two qualities are what allow that basic connection in this nonverbal, preverbal way to be sustained. Because the power of mindfulness really comes when it's sustained for several moments. Not just one moment of connecting with the present moment, but sustaining that present moment awareness. So again, just using some simple aspect of your experience, whether it's your the physicality, the sensations of breathing, or your buttocks on the cushion or chair, or the temperature of the room. So... And it doesn't matter how many times you kind of back into thinking, then just when the prompt comes or when you remember on your own, then come back to that more radical, simple, oh yeah, warmth is like this. Warmth is being known. Or pressure, contact is being known. Or that touching of the in-breath is being known. Or the touching of the out-breath is being known. And then learning to allow it, to accept it, to to brighten the mind by being interested, to be willing to be more intimate, so the A and the I and RAIN, to sustain that really simple presence. And we're learning that we can survive without a story about who we are or what's going on or whether we're doing the practice right or not. We We don't need some concept or story to interrupt the continuity of presence of this radical, radically simple. It's not radical in some like out there way. What makes it radical is how simple it is. It's like it's what's left when all the complicated ways, habitual ways the mind is busy, when that stuff is allowed to cease, then things get really simple. 
So the first step always in our practice, whether you're using a practice that relies on an anchor, like mindfulness of breathing, or mindfulness of the body, or mindfulness of hearing, or you're doing what you might call a more open attention practice where the awareness goes with whatever's predominant, thinking's like this, hearing's like this, so the attention can go (coughs) from one object to the next. Either way, it's the same. We need to connect, so recognize, oh, this is something that's being known, that something might be the anchor you've chosen, like mindfulness of breathing, the touching of the breath going in, the touching of the breath going out. For some of you, when you do mindfulness of breathing, you're feeling it in the belly. So then you'd be feeling the sensations of that movement as the belly expands and the sensations of the movement as the belly contracts, that rising and falling of the abdominal wall. Right? But regardless, there's a moment of connecting. And then the question is, how can the mind, the knowing mind, learn how to sustain that simple awareness? And you're, it could be sustaining simple awareness with whatever's predominant, if you're doing an open awareness practice, or you're sustaining awareness of your particular anchor, training ground, like if you're using the breath. Does that make sense? Because a lot of people think, oh, there are different practices. You know, mindfulness of the breathing, having an anchor is one thing, and doing open awareness practice is something different. But they're not. Because whether you're working with a particular meditation anchor or you're just being aware of whatever's predominant moment by moment by moment, you still need to recognize it's like this now. This is an experience being known. It's just something being known. Then the question is, how can I allow it? How can I how can the mind be interested in it in a way to in a way that sustains that simple and insightful presence, that wisdom awareness? How can I learn that I don't have to control it? I don't have to be for or against the sensations of the breath or whatever it is that's being known in that moment? How can I learn how to be even more intimate? So being more intimate, being interested means how to go, because even when the experience isn't very much mediated by language, you'll be surprised to find that even though the thoughts may not be obvious, there's very subtle levels of thinking, of conceptualizing going on. So the interest, the I and the acronym RAIN, it's really we're inviting whatever that phenomena is that's being known, that the awareness is sustaining with, we're inviting it to reveal itself, like to be a natural phenomena, not the idea we have of it. Like you can even do this with relationships. Like when you go home or right now, you know, when you're having an interaction with another person, you'll notice the habit is to want to mediate the experience with my ideas of who this person is and my expectations. But when you're just there in the conversation, listening to the person, interacting with them, and you're practicing not having your experience mediated by your ideas of the person, 
you find it like amazing. And to let that person be the activity of nature. They're not a somebody. They're this display, right? Seeing, hearing. And you're just, it's like bursting forth. In the same way the program right now is, or when you walk out the door tonight, you know, moment to moment, the present moment just bursts forth right into the mind. It's just, it's arriving. You can't stop it. And you're not in control of what's like bursting forth, the kind of emotional feel, the visual feel, the auditory feel, the tactile experience. It's just kind of, there it is. The heart, you know, the sensitive mind, the heart, is radically exposed. It's being impacted, touched, all the time. So we're learning to get to that very raw, vulnerable place, because that's the place of insight. And you can see it takes some training, because when we're thinking about what's happening to us, when our experience is mediated by language, on the surface we feel safer, because we have an idea of what's happening. We're telling ourselves what we think is happening, even if we're telling ourselves this is terrible. At least the concept of whatever we're telling ourselves is happening gives us a sense of being, you know, in control or at least knowing what's going on. But we're willing, like, to be mindful, we're willing to abandon conceptual meaning. A mind, we're realizing the mind that's not dependent on knowing on that conceptual level. Instead, we're knowing in an immediate, direct way. We say, in Buddhism, we say, seeing things as they are. That's what the word dharma or dhamma means, seeing things as they are. But when we use that word in Buddhist terms, we're not talking about, oh yeah, I'm at common ground. Dhamma or dharma, the way it is now, is when your heart, your sensitive heart, opens to this and you understand this not mediated by your ideas of this. So what is this experience not mediated by ideas? Do you get a sense of how, like, do you get a sense of the absence of meaning? And can you, you can go back and forth like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of people at common ground. I'm sitting here. My body feels like this. To the present moment unformed by language experience, undefined by language experience. And you can learn to go back and forth between those two words. So they're literally two worlds. The world mediated by language, dominated by language, clearly related to this other world of Dharma. And then the world of Dharma It's like it's easy, our mind can easily put it into language, but we don't have to. We can know it, and we can learn how to sustain in that very simple place. So this acronym of RAIN can help that. So you're sitting, and you've been lost in thought, and then you remember, oh yeah, okay, I've got got this little trick. So R, recognize. 
Recognize what the mind is knowing. Right? That's what R means. Because the mind is always knowing. The sensitive mind is always knowing. So just recognize what the mind is knowing. You know, and so what is the mind knowing now? Well, sound of Mark, hearing Mark's voice is like this, or hearing is like this, or seeing is like this. Seeing is being known. Seeing is being known. And so when we're aware of seeing, you know, there's just shape and color. Or touching is being known. Sensations are being known. And then in each moment of knowing, there's the accepting and the interest or the intimacy. Like how we sustain that radical simplicity. Well, we sustain it by allowing it allowing everything to be simple, not mediated by language, and being closer and closer, more and more intimate. Being interested doesn't mean I'm going to figure it out, because that usually means the mind is being mediated by language. Being intimate means we're letting the moment reveal itself. We're letting the moment, we're letting everything be. And then the last, the N in RAIN, it's not something we practice so much. It's something that the mind realizes when the first three are in uh, have some momentum. When the mind is recognizing moment by moment that this is being known and there's an allowing as opposed to a reactivity and there's interest instead of superficiality. You know what a good definition of delusion is? Some of you know that in Buddhist terms and the way the Buddha taught, there's only one real problem and that is delusion or ignorance. And one of the most obvious expressions of ignorance or delusion, and you can see if this you relate to this, is thinking you know what's going on. Right? Because when I have this thought like, oh yeah, I'm, I've done this. This Wednesday night group has been going on since 1993. And I've been the one who's done it most of those Wednesday nights. So 52 times, you know, 20 whatever years it's been. Almost 22 years, I guess. You know, that's a lot of Wednesday nights. So it's so easy for my mind to go, yeah, I'm giving the Wednesday night talk. But they, you know, to uh, recognize and allow and to be intimate with this means not to be fooled by the concept. I don't have to be against that thought arising in my mind because that would just be another thought, like I shouldn't be thinking that thought. That's a thought too. But it's really about not being fooled by that thought. The thought, I'm just giving another talk on Wednesday night at Common Ground, is not this. That's a thought being known. This, whatever this is, is this. It's not language. It's not a concept. This is not a concept. It's touching and seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and emotional feeling. and It's all that stuff, all of which is in motion, which is what this is. So when, we, when we're interested in that, when we're accepting and interested, then it reveals itself. And when it feels like there's no ground, when it feels really alive, and whole, like no inside, outside, not dualistic, but whole, like one thing, 
then we know that we've got the first three. We're recognizing, accepting, we're being intimate. And it sets up the insight into N, which is non-attachment. Like realizing it's not personal. It's nature, not self. And it's having this N insight, the insight into non-attachment, tens of thousands of times, that is this process of liberation that the Buddha talks about. This, the more we recognize this as this, instead of, oh yeah, I'm giving another talk on Wednesday night at Kamagran, every time there's that, that insight, there's an experience of this without a self that owns it, or that is part of this, or that is, has a feeling for or against this, and that is liberating. When this, any moment of life, is seen as nature, then there is nobody who has a problem. And that experience is hard to imagine. Because there's not even a somebody who's experiencing the freedom. That's part of that experience of freedom that the Buddha talks about. Or any mystic, of course, you know, we use the the way the Buddha describes it here at Common Ground, being a Buddhist meditation center. But people have had this experience, of course, regardless of where they were raised. Some people, not too many. But through history, people have stumbled upon this experience, you know, the basic mystical experience of non-dual reality. Now, a mind awake, sensitive, and not confused, not being confused, not their experience not limited by language, which is dualistic. This is happening to me. You see, like, what is pain? Like, even existential pain, like, oh my God, someday I'm going to die. Or no matter how hard I work, I don't know if I'm going to have enough money because anything can happen. So you bring up one of those anxieties, but what's the experience of being vulnerable to death, which we all are, or being vulnerable to financial ruin or humiliation or, you know, you just fill in the blank. When we ground in the present moment, an experience not mediated by language, what is the experience of insecurity or vulnerability or any threat? What is that? You know, if uh, you can remember a time where you felt really threatened, the thing is, you know, often we're in the bubble of our fear, the thoughts we have, like, what happens if I don't fix this or make this go away? But every once in a while, you'll notice the gap between the thoughts. It's sort of amazing. I see this. You've heard me mention this, some of you. Like in my arguments with my wife sometimes, you know, when that can get intense, like probably most happily married couples. I think it's actually part of a a healthy and happy marriage is to be able to be real with each other. And uh, But what's so interesting now, Wynn's a longtime practitioner, wonderful teacher as well, and uh, what's so interesting is, like, when we're really into it, whatever the argument might be about or the discussion might be about, it's like to notice that 
on the one hand, being identified or caught in the content of whatever we're arguing about, but having moments of realizing sort of that's just thought. It's just an argument. In the midst of all this unformed, undefined, vast space of everything being okay. Not personal, not a problem. So we start to see things like the fear of death or the fear of financial ruin or the fear of humiliation like as a functioning person in society with friends and stuff, you know, we need to be able to play in the way that this culture world works, but we don't have to be fooled by it. So we understand fear, we understand concern, but we understand that it's just that, like we we know the flavor of being in the bubble without being lost or caught in the bubble, like that it's just a bubble. Like I can, you know, look at my retirement fund, especially last few weeks when the stock market has been going down, you know, and I can have those concerns arise. And then, because of practice, my mind isn't limited by whatever fear or concern might arise. It's just a bubble. Or I can get some praise and that sort of sense of self-satisfaction when people like me, for example, without being confused by that bubble. It's just that, you know, and you know, because my personality has its conditioning like all of us do, when that praise comes every once in a while, then it will trigger sort of that whole whatever, feelings of self-esteem or whatever you want to call that, but we don't have to let that be more than what it is. We don't have to get lost in that bubble. It's just that feeling that happens when that kind of activity happens around us. In the same way, if something humiliating humiliating happens, will be that will be a different bubble. But we're not trapped or imprisoned in the bubble because the mind has more space, the space of what is unconditioned and unformed, right? And that's why we practice recognizing, allowing, being intimate, and having insights into the impersonal, into non-attachment, non-identification, or the impersonal nature. And touching, tasting the liberation of any moment of experience, not mediated, not imprisoned, by the thoughts the mind has, without being against the thoughts the mind has. So I'll leave it here. And maybe you have questions about this acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N, how to use it, comments from your own, insights from your own practice you'd like to share with the group. Be nice to hear folks, and I think we have a mic somewhere. Yeah. And we'll get the mic for you. And remember to point it right at your mouth. It works better that way. Hi, I'm Nick. Um, so I'm in, in graduate school, and a lot of the things that I realized from your talk today was I found I'd been training my brain to really be good at conceptualizing, given that graduate school is all about learning all these concepts. So do you have any advice for 
how to balance that with non-conceptualization and being present. Yeah, finish as quickly as you can. (laughs) Because it's a hard environment, like you said. It is. I mean, and there's lots of things in the university system or environment that's challenging. It's very hierarchical. It's all about future orientation, getting done, getting ahead, getting published, getting whatever. So it is challenging. There's no doubt about it. There are some places in life or some situations that are more conducive than others. So, yeah, it's appropriate to see it as challenging. And there's just a lot of study. Of course, all this study involves language. So, but, you know, and they're finding actually, I don't know if you caught this, but maybe about a year ago there were several studies published and it made mainstream press. I know, I think it was in the New York Times where I read about it where they found, because they, they used to think like getting distracted when you're studying uh, was bad, but actually stopping, like you're studying and then going to get a drink of water and then coming back and studying and then talking to somebody and then actually benefits because coming back to the material, like re-entering that conceptual world, that map, and then leaving it, and then coming back to it, is really useful. So the, the, the important thing is to understand that these maps are relative. They're not truths. They're just maps, conceptual maps. And uh, for, you, know, you need to find some <clears throat> motivation to master the maps, besides just sort of... Um, Ego, you know, like becoming somebody who has mastered the map. So you need to put the work in the context of taking care of all beings so that the motivation to do that work of memorizing the map has a, a good feeling in the heart, like you're taking care of yourself and all beings. If there's some pragmatic way of using this map to help other beings. And then... Practice not forgetting it's just a map, right? So that you pick it up and use it, and then you put it down. Because the other thing that's endemic in academia, people being attached to their maps and arguing with people who have a slightly different map than they have. And whose map is bigger? You know, my map's bigger than your map. My map's stronger than your map. Things like that. Yeah. And again... Get out of there as soon as you can. And that helps, thanks. <laughs> I was a grad student for a long time in the 90s. I realized you can only have one religion, and I chose Buddhism. <laughs> Academia is its own sort of religion. Yeah, Tom. Yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> I was um, fortunate and unfortunate to spend uh, four hours with a three-year-old yesterday. Um, and I, I mentioned to a friend of mine this morning, you know, how difficult it was. Uh, he comes to me and says, Uncle Tom, I, I peed in the, in the, um, in the shed. Oh, you peed in the shed. Let's go look, you know. And, <laughs> and so, you know, and it's like, oh yeah, he peed in the shed, you know. Um, and it was just a day of that, you know, it was like, <laughs> What is this kid doing? He's become a monster, actually. And and I mentioned this to a friend of mine. He said, I have two girls who are three to five. 
they're monsters. <laughs> says, I don't know how they can uh, survive this, but uh, do you have any ideas? Well, th- the important thing is to see it like our mind, to see it as nature. I mean, it's amazing. You know, and children, especially at that age, they're especially easy to see as forces of nature. And they can actually teach us some important things like our willingness to be nature. Now, in our case, we're more than nature. We're also cultivating a wise presence that knows that our personality is nature. Right? So there you are, the old grumpy 65-year-old, or whatever you are. <laughs> what? Well, no, 42-year-old. <laughs> kind of having thoughts about the three-year-old, you know. But you can have that wise, non-judging space observing your own personality as a force of nature and the same way you can observe the three-year-old doing whatever the three-year-old is doing as a force of nature. Simply acting out causes and conditions, Right? And that's amazing. To It's embarrassing and humiliating at first, but after you've done it for years and years, it becomes less humiliating, like to see your parents being expressed through your own personality. I remember back in the early 80s, I was teaching sixth graders. Uh, my first year teaching sixth graders, I had taught second and third graders for a while and was comfortable, but then I got to sixth graders and they have a way, you know, they're just, they know how to get under your skin in a way. And, uh, and I saw myself in front of some sixth grade boys, and it was like clear as day, I was my dad. And I had a good dad. And he, but there it was, you know, just sort of my dad, you know, that sort of male bravado, but underneath it's sort of like scared to death that they're not going to listen to my, like this is my last straw. I'm, I'm playing like I'm bigger than you card with these sixth grade boys. And it's like, they could call my bluff because I'm not really going to do anything because I'm bigger. And, uh, and so there's like, on the one hand, there's sort of this fake bravado and under, under, uh, underneath it is just this frightened little guy. And I, and I just saw my dad because that's exactly how I saw my dad too. You know, it's like, he was trying to be a man, but underneath, you know, it's like, there's a world here that I'm not in control of, which is an honest way to experience ourselves. But it was really humiliating to just see that getting acted out. But now, I still see it, but now there's a lot of space because it's the personality is not self. This is not me. And it's such a relief that the way my personality is, is not me. It's just the result of causes and conditions, the culture, my upbringing, the thises and the thats. And it's just happening in the same way that three-year-old is happening. Uh, some of you know Ruth Dennison, who died a couple months ago. She was one of the early Western Buddhist teachers, a great uh, woman teacher. Um, or um, Her teacher was um, Uba Ken, a great lay teacher from Burma. And... Uh, but she was out, had an outrageous personality. I mean, in some ways, she was really hard to take as a teacher. But she was totally comfortable being who she was. 
And that was the real gem of being around her as a teacher. It's like, she didn't care her personality was this way because that's how it was, you know? So her teachings were seamlessly expressed through her personality. It wasn't that she was a bad person or anything like that or immoral. That's not what I mean. It was just like a strong kind of out there personality. Ruth Dennison. And uh, she was born in Germany and, and then left right after the war. Um, yeah, there's some talks on Dharma Seed if you ever want to listen to her. She taught for years and years at IMS. But this is where we're going with our personality and this is where kids are already. Now, eventually, they're going to become self-aware and they're going to have to learn to be aware of their personality without taking it personally. And that's what we're doing with our practice. Thanks, Tom, for bringing it up. Other thoughts that come to mind? Anne, thanks. Um, thank you. Um, I'm having trouble with um, people in my life, a few people that I think are treating me in a way that I don't want to be treated or that maybe they don't like me. And they're some of them are friends. And so I seem to be aware of my feelings that, you know, part of it, I feel very, very sad about it and angry and my thoughts. And so I'm try in a lot of ways, I'm not doing anything, but I think I'm thinking that I sh- want to do something. And that I also realize that I can't make anybody treat me a certain way and I can't make anybody like me. So I'm not sure, um, like you were saying, you get in a fight sometimes with your partner, with Wynn. And it's sort of like we do that. We don't just not do something sometimes. Right. But now that you know that it's an issue, you can take the time to, like, if it's an experience you're having of not liking feeling treated this way or not liking the idea that's in your mind that they don't like me. So then that's an experience that's being known. So you can recognize that that's an experience. So you're going from the thought, they don't like me, to the fear or whatever, you, the emotion, right to the fact that it hurts. You're recognizing it hurts. And then you practice allowing it. You practice being intimate with it. And you keep doing that until you start having insight, the insight of non-attachment. It's not personal. Because doing that work will help you figure out what you're going to say to them or not say to them or what you're going to do. So if you can do that work first and then see what makes sense to say or do to them, that would be best. And the last part you said was you kind of see that it's not personal, personal, which is the hardest part. Yeah, but that's just because we haven't done it enough. We have to keep recognizing. And remember, it's really important when we recognize the thought, I don't think they like me. What's really relevant in that moment isn't the content of the thought, I don't think they like me, but that the fear that's there, or the emotional charge that's there, and that it hurts. So actually what's most relevant in that moment, you go right from the thought to the fact that It hurts like this right now. You go right to the ouch and you're recognizing, the knowing mind is recognizing, ah, it hurts like this. 
this is unpleasant. This unpleasantness is being known. Can this be okay? So that's the acceptance, the allowing, the relaxing, being more intimate, more interested, seeing that it's a changing process, that whatever that unpleasant, yucky feeling is, it's moving, right? When we have the thought, they don't like me, it seems fixed. Conceptual, the concept makes it seem solid. But the actual dynamic of feeling vulnerable or hurting, it's alive. It's movement. It's nature. And the more we're intimate with that nature, the more it dawns in the mind, this is not self. This is not personal. It's just causes and conditions. And they're like this now. And we make peace with that. We don't have to run from that. So then when you talk to your friends, it won't be because your heart is unwilling to be intimate or vulnerable with that feeling. Now you can talk to them because you want to take care of yourself and all beings out of compassion for yourself and for them and everybody else. You might say something, you might do something, you might not see them anymore. But it won't be because you're afraid of feeling what it feels like to have the thought, I don't think they like me, which comes with the feeling, whatever that yucky feeling is. Because we've made peace with that. We see it as nature and not as self. The yucky feeling isn't self. It's nature. It's a natural dynamic. But we have to keep doing it over and over. It's like a process, not a one-time thing. Thanks, Anne. That's really useful to hear. We have to leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. So just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. being really grateful for the community and for these ancient teachings that have been passed down. So many women and men through the centuries had busy lives but did their practice. Now it's our turn in our busy lives to cultivate this wise, kind presence May this be a cause for real happiness and peace and freedom from suffering for ourselves and for all beings. May this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.